The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by children under wrath, as, of, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Thanks, Suzanne. If you've got a Bible, please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. This spring, I'm leading this cohort of younger preachers, trying to help them improve in the interpretation of the text and how they develop and deliver sermons. And one of the things we're doing in there is that they'll send me uh, a video of a recent sermon. I'll watch the sermon and then give them feedback. Like, that can be intimidating. It can be hard. And it can be humbling when someone reviews your work. Maybe you just had that happen, an end-of-the-year review with your boss. Like, how did that go? Did your perception of your work match your boss's perception of your work? If you're a high school student or a college student, then this happens to you all the time, right? These quizzes and tests and projects are basically your teacher's way, your instructor's way of giving you feedback, of reviewing the work you're doing. Have you ever had that experience where you took a test and somebody said, how'd you do? And you're like, I did great. Like, I killed it. I knew everything. And all of a sudden, you see your grade posted and you're like, what happened? How how could I have, you know, you wouldn't have asked, how could I have been so wrong? You're like, what mistake did the teacher make in grading? Because I'm certain I did well. Like, we all think our self-perception is accurate, but we're not actually good at evaluating ourselves. If you think you're good at valuing yourself, I have a question for you. When was the last time you heard a recording of your own voice? Is that how you sound in your head when you talk? Or have you ever looked at a photo someone took and you're in the photo on their phone and you're like, inside you're like, do I always look like that? Right? Your, your self-perception is wildly inaccurate, as is mine. And to make matters worse, our perception of other things is off. In fact, I guarantee you that your perception of God is off. This letter to the Ephesians is written in large part to correct our perception of God and his work in the world. This week in staff meeting, Julie Curry showed me her phone. There's a reason she showed me her phone. It's because for years I have made fun of how large the font is on her phone. I'm not exaggerating when I say she literally has to scroll to finish the word. Like, that's how bad it was. But she showed it to me, and she said, this is almost normal person font. 
So because she had gone to the eye doctor and the right combination of reading glasses and trifocals and contacts and surgery, I don't know what all happened, but now she can read her phone with sort of normal sized letters. I was thinking about that. You know, the interesting thing is the words and the letters and the sentences are exactly the same now as they were before. The difference is her view, her perception, her, her eyesight. In chapter 1, as we've studied the last few weeks, the Apostle Paul has been graciously showing how off our eyesight is, how off our perception is. You could say in one sense he, he opened with this question, what do you think God's blessings look like? And before the Ephesian church could answer wrongly, they, they would probably tend to want to answer like their neighbors around them who, who took gifts to the idols, to the gods in their community, and had this transaction where it's like, give the God a gift and the God blesses me with health or with financial stability or with success in my job. So before they could answer that, the Apostle Paul says, let me answer the question for you. Here's what God's blessings look like. They're way bigger and longer lasting and better than anything you can imagine. And then he goes on to list them. God chose you and he adopted you and he sealed you and he's given you an inheritance. These are his blessings. And then, if you remember last week at the end of Chapter 2, he in essence asks this question, what does God's power look like? And again, before they can answer incorrectly, he's, he helps them perceive that the, there's real power working on behalf of the church. The church may look small, it may look unimportant, it may look insignificant in their culture, but he's like, no, there's real power here, right? It's power that raises dead people to life. It's power that will rule and reign over all powers. It is now because Jesus is in heaven and it will forever. And it's power that has begun to restore human beings to their God-given role as his representatives with dignity and honor. That's what's happening. You may not see it, but that's the power that's happening. So in writing Ephesians, the Apostle Paul here is assuming the role of spiritual optometrist. He's got us in the exam room and he wants us to see what's real. And so as he opens chapter 2, he's going to continue to shape our perception of both God and ourselves. He's going to correct our faulty view of sin and of God's grace. And so he's going to start by showing us how our self-perception is is just completely inaccurate. Here's what we learn in verses 1 through 3. Apart from Christ, we are way worse than we admit. Apart from Christ, we are way worse than we admit. Nothing good happens in a graveyard. If If you're watching a movie and the main character enters a graveyard, no one has to tell you that things are about to take a a turn. Right? In fact, the whole, the whole movie does, right? You, all of a sudden, the sort of ominous music starts playing, and the moon shifts behind clouds, and the wind blows, and the, the leaves rustle. All of this is telling us, like, like something bad's going to happen. Because graveyards are this grisly picture of death. So it's a perfect backdrop for terror. Every tombstone in there is a reminder of man's mortality. No one who's of sound mind throws a party in a cemetery. But notice our text begins with a seminary, and and more than that, it says, if you look closely in the coffin, you'll see yourself. Look at verse 1, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what's that mean? What's it mean to be dead in our trespasses and sins? I think you can best understand this by thinking about Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. So the Bible opens with God creating all things. All the things that we see and experience come from the hand of of the creator. And and the pinnacle of his creation are a man and woman, the first human beings. 
And they're placed in this, this perfectly designed place, this garden, where they're, they're going to worship him, they're going to enjoy him, they're going to live in delight and perfection. Everything's going to be wonderful. And God says, you simply have to do one, you just have to give, obey me. I'm going to give you one command, that's it. Not even a long list, one command, you obey it. You get to enjoy this forever. The one condition is you don't eat of this tree in the middle of the garden. He says, if you do, you will certainly die. Now he uses this word die, and at that point we have no idea if they understand what this concept is because there is nothing about death around them. Death is unknown. But he says you will certainly die. And the story goes, of course, right, that they do exactly what God forbid. they tempted by the serpent, they take of the fruit, they eat it. And their punishment is death. And we learn then, what, what does God mean when he says, you will certainly die, what is death? And we see that it has two parts. That the first part is physical. That from the moment they eat that fruit, their bodies begin to wear out. Before this, there was no such thing as, as pain or sickness or, or the aging that brings deterioration. This was not part of their experience, but it happens as soon as they eat. They start to die. They're, they're just on this forward path to physical death and it eventually comes, their life is extinguished and they return to the dust from which they came. But there's a second part, and this is, they die spiritually. And this is pictured when they're, they're kicked out of the garden. They're barred from the presence of God. And it's showing them that their sin is separate from God. They're no longer innocent. They stand guilty before the righteous judge. And so this relationship, which from the moment they were created has been one of intimacy, is now estranged. Where before they had... They had worshipped God. They had walked with him. They'd enjoyed his presence. They had experienced his life. Now they're living in rebellion to him. They're worshipping created things instead of the creator. They're searching for the joy they lost in these cheap earthly substitutes. And so we see the, these two parts of death, both spiritually and physically. We see a further description of this death, the spiritual part of death in verses 1 through 3. Look again, and you were dead. In your trespasses and sins, he's going to describe it now, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So look at how he describes this death, this existence apart from Christ. He says, you're rebellious against God. You're following Satan, who's the prince of darkness. You're walking this perverse path of a world that is anti-God. You're enslaved to your desires which only corrupt yourself and others. He says we're spiritual zombies. We're the walking dead. There's this physical life, but inside we're dead. We're empty. We're without life. We're alive to sin, but we're dead to righteousness. We're alive to unbelief. We're dead to faith. We're alive to lies and deception. We love those, but we're dead to what's true and beautiful. So he says, your, your eyes, yes, can still capture light and turn that into the images which we see. He says, but your heart can't do that anymore. Your heart doesn't comprehend the revelation of God and the beauty of God's presence 
Like you can't see these and perceive these anymore. So from the outside, Adam and Eve, on the moment after they ate the fruit, they looked the same, but on the inside, it was shut down. It was dead. It was nothing. When the philosopher Jeremy Bentham died, he made this incredibly strange request. So he donated his entire estate. It was a significant estate to the University College Hospital in London. But he had this one condition. Every year they would wheel his preserved body into the boardroom at the annual retreat. And every year the chairman was required to say, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. This is what philosophy, too much philosophy does to a person, right? (laughs) That's weird. Like he's physically present in a sense, but he can't interact with anyone. He's unable to, to engage or relate to those around him. This is what Ephesians 2 verse 1 is saying about us. It's saying, yeah, you're, you're physically alive. You're physically there, but you can't, you can't relate to God anymore. You can't interact with God. You can't fellowship or know God anymore. Your sin has alienated from you. You're just you're a spiritual corpse. Now, friend, you may hear this description and say, like, well, that doesn't describe me. Of course, no one wants to think this could refer to us. Our natural reaction is to say, well, no, not, not me. But we need to recognize how, how our perception of ourselves is at odds with reality. This describes every human being apart from Jesus. Look at the first few words of verse 3. It says, we to all previously lived. So verse 1 begins with this phrase, you were. Now it changes to we all were. So the you in verse 1 could refer to like this particular church, these Gentiles that were worshiping idols. But then he is careful to say we all. He extends it to everyone. There is no one who's not included in this. Gentile, Jew, pagan, religious, man, woman, slave, free, rich, poor, you, me, we all are dead in trespasses. Like there's no loophole. This is a universal diagnosis. Like, you may disagree, but you're wrong, because God is very clear here. In fact, he says this in verse 3. He says, you are by nature children. Like, it just is what it is. It's by nature. It's true. He says, by nature, you're dead. You're rebellious. You're cut off from life. And you've got these passions inside you that are just... They're tied so tightly to things that are worthless and empty. And as much as you often want to get rid of them, you can't. You keep going back to them. It's like that's true of all of us. So he says here, you're hopeless and worse than that, you're rebellious. Now, I think, I think most people recognize that there is a spiritual problem. Like we, we recognize something isn't right. Like that something in our world is broken. This is why so much time and effort and energy are put into these initiatives to try to fix things, right? Everyone says like, there's things wrong. There's no person who's around like, everything's perfect. There's something wrong. And maybe even we say there's something wrong in all of us. Something's broken. But here's what we don't recognize is the gravity of the problem. And so a misdiagnosis of what the actual problem is is what drives religion, Religion is man's best attempts to fix the problem. So think about Ephesus. We know from Acts 19, this is, idol worship is everywhere. This is a very religious city. They've got pagan temples and statues. Like, it's a big deal. They're very serious. And what is it saying? They're saying, we know something's wrong. 
And so here's how we're going to fix it. We're going to erect this statue. We're going to go and we're going to offer this thing. And in offering this thing, then we'll get some assistance from this idol, from this God, who will then help us with what we need. And this is all religion. Is we're going we're gonna to do our part, God's going to do our part. Religion looks at a man as a hospital patient. Like not spiritually dead, but spiritually unhealthy. Not cut off from God, but a strained relationship with God. And so because religion begins with this misdiagnosis, the cure is ineffective. So I just want you to understand that there are people all around our community this morning who woke up and they said there's something wrong. And I've been ignoring it. I'm going to go fix it. And so they're like, I'm going to go to, a, I'm going to, go to some sort of worship service somewhere. And in doing so, hopefully that will fix what's, what's wrong. And I'll go there and maybe they hear and they're like, oh, that, yeah, that, maybe I, what I do, there's some people in need. I'm going to write them a check. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to sign up to help with that thing because like, that would be good. And all of this is an attempt on their own to, to, to try to fix what's wrong. It's an attempt to, to make their spiritual life a little healthier. But the only thing religious activity has the power to do is to make a corpse look prettier. Religion is the mortician who manicures the corpse so they look better in the casket. It can only, at its best, give this appearance of life. But is that what we're after? The appearance of life? Have you ever been to a wax museum? They appear alive, but it's creepy, right? Because it's like, well, that looks like Elvis, but he, he's, I'm pretty sure he's not alive. Or what about really good animation on TV? That looks alive. Or, or what about artificial intelligence? It looks alive. But, but is that really what we want? Just something that looks alive? No, we're, we're after life itself. We're not sick in need of resuscitation. We're dead in need of resurrection. Now look at verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So in our hour of desperation, God intervened. This conjunction, but, it's one of those words that injects hope into our situation. Yes, we're dead in sin. Yes, we're alienated from God. Yes, we're awaiting judgment. But something happened. God did something for us. God did something to us. He made us alive with Christ. He seated us with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. God acted. We didn't do anything about our condition because we couldn't. We're dead, hopeless, powerless, but God saw our condition. And just as he raised Jesus from that tomb, he raises us from spiritual tombs. And so what happened to Jesus Christ on that first Easter morning, that's what happened to us. This is true of us, cut off from God, dead, cold, dark, lifeless, and God makes us alive and he promises us that this is a life that never ends. Like he has transformed our reality. No longer cut off from God, we've been brought in relationship with him. Instead of following the course of this world, now we follow Jesus until we are with him. So all of the tragic results that have been so painstakingly detailed in these first three verses have been reversed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through him we have died to sin, we've been raised to new spiritual life. And so what Paul is doing here, you've got to understand this, he's helping 
reshape our perception. We think, we think we're doing okay. Maybe we need a little help from God to supplement our own effort. We need a, a remodel. <laughs> like apart from Jesus, we're as dead as Lazarus was in the tomb. Like Lazarus was in the tomb napping for multiple days. He wasn't laying there debating his options for the future. He's dead. And the only thing that brings him to life is when the voice of Jesus speaks, his eyes open, his heart is pumping, his lungs are working. He's alive. Was dead, now is alive. He did nothing except walk out of the tomb. Right? It takes God raising us from death to life so that we can respond to his work of salvation. And so we've got to see this. This affects so much of our life and the lives of those around us. It helps us understand what's going on and understand what's happening with our world is we've got to see the reality of our condition. We are not decent people who've messed up. We're dead people without hope. And do you see it? Our perception of ourselves, of our own condition, needs to change. Now let's look at our, how our perception of God needs to change. In Christ, God is way more gracious than we imagine. In Christ, God is way more gracious than we imagine. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why did God make us alive? God made us alive so that his love, mercy, grace, and kindness would be revealed to us forever and ever without end. All of this, this entire work of salvation from Christmas to Easter, it's designed so that the world will be able to see how, how lavish the grace of God is. And so the cross, the grave, the resurrection, the future, it's not about God making much of us, it's about our ability now to make much of God. In fact, all of this that we've talked about for the last five weeks, all of this serves as a showcase so that people will see how kind, gracious, merciful, loving God is. I mean, everything we discovered in this unrivaled description of God's work of salvation that included election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, hope, sealing, and on and on, all of it, we're told, is so that we would be to the praise of His glorious grace. He wants everyone to know how gracious He is. The prophet Micah describes God, and I love this description, as the one who delights in mercy. He delights in it. Yes, God will judge sin. God is righteous. Sin is evil. And so he will, as a righteous judge, punish those who sin. And there is hope there too. But notice he's a God who delights in mercy. I think maybe it's possible that we picture God in our minds as this greedy banker on Wall Street who just, he hoards his mercy. Like he's reluctant to distribute it to those in need. See what it's saying? It's trying to get us to see, yes, God has treasure chests full of mercy and grace. But he doesn't hoard them. Like he desires to give it away to anyone who will ask. Like his plan is this. I always want to lavish my grace and mercy upon my children forever and ever. I want them to wake up every new morning in eternity discovering a new way I'm kind to them. That's what delights me, God. 
The cross and resurrection, they publicly display God's great wealth and his matchless generosity. It's, it's almost as if God is opening up his ledger book and he's saying, come, come look at it. L- look, look at this column. See how much mercy there is? Keep turning pages. You'll never, you'll never see the bottom line. Like page after page of my mercy. And what you'll find over on this side is how I just keep giving it out. Keep giving it out. I never lose any, but I keep giving it out. And nowhere, anywhere will you see a payment that someone made to me. Look, look, look. This is what I want you to see. Look at my mercy. Look how I give it freely. Look how I need nothing in return. Just look at it. Maybe you came in today with a heart that's just really heavy with sin. And you, you just feel the debt of your sin. You feel it weighing you down. And you're saying, I don't, I don't see a way out. Like, I have messed up so much. I have made so many mistakes. I just don't, I don't see how I can do anything to fix it. Like, I, I especially want you to hear this. God wants to spend his mercy on you. Like, he sent his son to pay your debt so that he can, so wipe it away. Never to be seen from, heard from, or remembered again. And now he's like, I want to give you freely the riches of my grace. I mean, believe him. These are his promises for you. So God is way more gracious than we realize. I want to show you three proofs of that. Three proofs that God is, is just more gracious than we imagine. Here's the first one. He loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we were sinners. God chose to love us when we hated him. So the cross is not about our loveliness. It's the opposite. It's a display of his mercy to the unlovely, unlovely. Look at verse 4 again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. I think most of us have a tendency to surround ourselves with nice people. I think it's like our parents told us as we were young, like, ooh, don't hang around her. She's not nice. And so the rest of our lives were like, oh, they're not nice. I shouldn't hang around them. And so we, like, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with people that are nice, people that we like, people, people that treat us well, that are decent and respectable. And, and the thing about that is often loving them not, is not that difficult. In fact, loving them is often just an extension of loving ourselves. Like they're good people. I enjoy them. And so it's easy to love them. It's, it's not necessarily a big display of love on my part to love the people I like. Right? But to love our enemies... Right, that's something entirely different, isn't it? That's not normal. Would Julius Caesar have pardoned Brutus? Would Abraham Lincoln have freed John Wilkes Booth? Would Martin Luther King Jr. have forgiven James Earl Ray? More than that, would they have actually said, I want you to be my closest friend. In fact, I want to adopt you, and then you get to inherit all of the wealth that I've accumulated. Would they have done that? And this is what it's saying. We rebelled against the God who created us, and yet he forgives us. And, and more than that, he says, I'm not just forgiving you. I'm going to make you my child, and then I'm going to spend the rest of eternity just giving you more things because I'm gracious and I love you. And each time we rebel against him, he promises to forgive us. I just want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that this this is the ground of our hope. This is the ground of our hope. That Jesus loved us when we didn't love him when we hated him, when we were sinners. This is the ground of our hope. Here's why. Because if Jesus loved us because of something we did, 
then, then the possibility would exist that we could do something that would cause him not to love us. So if in any way he responds to me because of what I offered him, then I could fail to offer him something or offer him the wrong thing that would then cause him to remove his love from us. But see, but, but God's not like that. He says, no, 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 no. Understand this. I loved you when you were the most unlovely. And so because his love for us is not based on anything in us, but only based on his great mercy, then we never have to fear that we could lose his love. Here's the second proof that God is more gracious than we imagine. He saved us apart from any work of our own. Apart from any work of our own. Look at verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. What can a dead person do to be made alive? Like, what can they do? I'm dead now, I want to be alive. What am I going to do about it? They can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. So if you're dead, the only hope you had before you died was that the one who, who created life would make you alive. That's what he does. The salvation is not like, like one of these group projects you assign some group projects, I bet, in class, don't you? Group projects where, where you put two or three students together and everyone's supposed to do their part, which that never happens, right? But everyone's supposed to do their part. Somebody figures out right away who will do it all, and the rest just pretend, put their names on at the end. You all do your part, and then you present it together, and it'll be received. Like, that's not how salvation is. Like, it's not a group project. Like, God does it all. He does it all. He says all we do is respond to him in faith. He saves us. We believe him. So man is saved by God's grace. It comes when we exercise faith. And this is maybe where you're saying, oh, but here, Josh, I got you. God's grace, our faith. He provides the grace, we provide the faith. See, there's, a, there's something we got to do. Now look closely at verse 8. This is this. This is not from yourselves. This is not from yourselves. What is not from yourselves? And the answer is any of it. Every part of salvation, including the act of faith comes from God. Like, so this gets to the heart of salvation. Salvation only comes when you realize that we can bring nothing to God except the sin which makes it necessary. Like that's our only contribution is sin that he has to forgive. We can't bring a gift. We can't bring a sacrifice. We can't give our effort, our choice, our determination. We bring nothing at all. Many years ago, when my boys were much younger, we were out to dinner with some relatives, and one of my sons spilled his drink, and you know, the relative sitting by just sort of carefully helped him clean it up. A few minutes later, he spills his drink again. And again, just very sweetly, they, they helped him clean it up. No big deal. Well, we were sitting there, and, and a minute or two later, like as parents, we could start to see the telltale sign, right, where the, the lip starts to quiver a little bit, and the chin does, and like, you can see he's getting emotional, and he gets up, and he sort of walks over to Carrie and buries her head and his head in her shoulder. After a moment, you know, well, it's okay. She says, what's wrong? And I just remember what he said. He said, they were being so nice to me, and there was nothing I could do to pay them back. Well, that was sweet, wasn't it? <laughs> but it shows our human nature, doesn't it? That we feel like, oh, we've got to do something to pay that person back. We can't, can't just receive it. We can't receive that grace. We've got, we got to earn it. We've got, we got to pay it back. Like we, I've got to do something to assist God. 
But, but if, if anything we could do is able in any way to earn our salvation, if any help is needed, it says then it would no longer be grace. It would be work that we have earned. And so that's why the metaphor that opens this chapter is perfect. We were dead in sin. What can a dead person do to be made alive? So if you've got paper and pen out, I want you to right now list all the activities you can think about that a dead person can perform. This is a second service. We can take as long as we want. No one's writing. Can't think of any? I asked my community group this week, and one said, you can rot. I'm not sure it's really an activity you perform. You know, you can do absolutely nothing. But nothing is sometimes the hardest thing to do. If you can do nothing, that means you are helpless. If you can do nothing, that means your sin is worse than you admit. If you can do nothing, that means you must humble yourself and cry out for help. So when Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, what did Lazarus contribute to his resurrection? Nothing. Jesus acted. Jesus spoke. Jesus worked. Jesus saved. Lazarus simply obeyed Jesus' command. That event did not demonstrate Lazarus' morality or his goodness or his worth. What it showed to everyone watching is how gracious and kind and merciful and powerful Jesus is. See, God loved us when we were sinners. He saved us far from any work of our own. And here's the third proof that his grace is greater. He turns us into a beautiful display of his grace. He turns us into a beautiful display of his grace. I want you to imagine walking into an art gallery for a special exhibit. If you're like me, you have to imagine that. It doesn't happen often. All right, but you've heard, there's a world-famous art artist. He's displaying his greatest works. There's all this buzz. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go to this. You go to this, and there's a crowd, and you're sort of just following this crowd as they all seem to be heading to the same place. They gather around one painting, his, his most famous painting. And as you inch closer and closer, what you hear surprises you. You hear a couple people raving about what they're looking at. Now, that doesn't surprise you, but what surprises you is what they're saying, is what you hear them raving about is one of them's raving about the, the particular brand of paint that the artist used, and he's going on and on about how great this paint is. And another one's looking at the canvas, and he's like, that's a really quality canvas. Do you know how they make those canvases? And they're going on and on, and people are starting to notice, and they're standing around these two in stunned silence. They can't believe that someone would stand in front of what one, maybe one of the world's greatest pieces of art. Ignore the art and, and adore the raw materials that were used to make it. Because no one comes to an art show to admire the cans of paint or the paintbrushes or the canvas. But they come to see the exhibit and praise the artist. They, they appreciate what he did taking this blank canvas and these, these simple colors of paint and, and turning it into this priceless display of beauty. It's the work of art that displays the brilliance of the artist. With that in mind, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So there's a lot of questions about what the universe is. Why is it here? What's the purpose? And on and on. And I'll tell you why it is. The universe is a gallery so that people will see and wonder and enjoy God's art. God has taken out his paintbrushes and he is constantly turning us into these priceless pieces of art. He is crafting us into monuments of his mercy. I mean, brothers and sisters, do you realize God is telling you that he has a design for you that predates creation? That he has been planning from eternity past to paint you into this perfect picture of his grace. Before he saved you, your life was like a condemned building. Sin had taken up residence. It made a mess of everything. The world had tagged you with its graffiti. And the only thing that your life displayed was brokenness and the decay of sin. But then God stepped in. And he began his renovation project. And no longer would your life display the marks of slavery. Now, now he's turning you into this priceless work of art crafted by the hands of an artist to display you to the world. Before you lived in rebellion and now he has given you the desire to live righteously. Before you walked after the spirit of this world and now you walk in good works. There was this beautiful old poem I remember from when I was a kid and it was about an auction and so the, the first stanza of the poem talked about the auctioneer holding up a violin. And the violin's dusty and it's battered a little bit and it's worn. And so he holds it up and he says, who'll give me a dollar? Who'll give me two? Who'll give me three? And then he says, going once, going twice. And before he can sell it for three dollars, an older man comes from the back and he walks up front and he, he takes this violin, battered and worn, dusty, and he starts playing it. The crowd sits there in stunned silence because they've never heard music as beautiful as what they're hearing now. And when he finally stops, there's this hush over the crowd and the auctioneer holds up the violin and says, who'll give me 1,000? Who'll give me 2,000? Who'll give me 3,000? And a voice from the crowd asks, what's the difference? Like, why is it going from $1 to $3,000? And the auctioneer says, it's the touch of the master's hand. Do you realize if we were to really, really get what God says here and our perception of his grace and of his kindness and of his mercy, if we were to really get this and it were to change, then our perception of our circumstances would change as well. Verse 10 says that God has prepared, as part of his crafting you into something beautiful that displays his grace to the world, he's going he's to put you on display in this gallery of the world so that people say, wow, look at how gracious the artist is who made this. He says, if you really would perceive that he has designed good works for you, before creation began, he designed good works for you to do so that his grace would be seen and people would be in awe and wonder of it. So if, if your perception about that were to change, then that means that every single opportunity of your life, 
you would see as an opportunity prepared by God for you to do good work. So tomorrow you're driving to work. You make it off to the side of the road. And before you slam your fists on the dash and say, I don't have time for this, you maybe say, oh God, what good work are you preparing me to do here? What work of your grace am I supposed to do on the side of the road that I could never have done if I kept driving? Or when you go to the doctor and he says, I have really bad news. That when you hear that bad news, you hear something else, which is, which is God's assurance to you. Like, I've got a good work for you to do in this. I'm doing something. Before you were around, before this universe existed, I had planned this moment so that you would do good by my strength, in my name, and people would see in you my grace. See, our, our perception of our circumstances is governed by our perception of God's grace. The hard things in life are gifts from God to do good in a way that displays his beauty and power. When a piece of granite is crafted into a beautiful statue, it takes quite a pounding. Imagine being the piece of granite for a moment. The artist walks in with a chisel in hand and you're thinking, ooh, that looks painful. And he sets it up against you and he rears back and he smashes it. And you scream out in pain. Ow! That hurt! Why are you doing that? Right, every blow of the chisel may be painful, but never is a blow made that does not have a purpose. And so maybe this is how you feel. Like you're, you're like, I feel like I have been under the chisel of God lately. And you're tempted to grow frustrated and angry. Just remember every blow is struck with mercy. That it's because of God's grace that he is taking the sandpaper and he's shaving off all of the rough edges and when, when you want to be frustrated, instead, like be encouraged. Right? God is molding you into a display of his grace that will cause people who do not yet perceive his beauty and wonder to see it in you. And so this passage reveals our desperate need in God's extravagant grace. You've got to see these two realities together. Because... If you don't see your need, you don't really recognize the truths of verses 1 through 3, but you see his grace, his grace becomes cheap. It becomes meaningless. Right? It's, it's the person who's drowning in the deep sea that understands how important the life raft is. And it's the person who's aware of the depth of their sin that understands how important God's grace is. But then on the other hand, if you, there are some who, they, they live well, verses 1 through 3, like, Desperate need, brokenness, pain, stuff. Like this is darkness. This is what they feel. And what you need to see is God's grace. Because if you don't see God's grace, you'll just despair. And you're going to do one of two things. In, as you're drowning in your sin, you're, just, you're going to try to figure it out on your own. Or you're just going to give up. Nothing's ever going to happen. 
Nothing's ever going to change. No one will ever rescue me. But this is what, you've got to see them together. When you see how hopeless you are apart from God, right? You're dead in your sins. You're helpless to save yourself. You're estranged from God. You're awaiting his judgment. And then you see that alongside his grace, right? He's going to make you alive in Christ, raise you up with him, seat you in the heavens, so that forever and ever and ever he can give you new experiences of his kindness. It's when you see these two together, your need and his grace, that's when you'll come to him. And so, friend, I plead with you, come to Jesus today. Turn from your sin. Ask him to save you. Recognize your spiritual poverty, but that he is rich in mercy. Recognize that you're spiritual dead and call to him for spiritual life. I mean, do you realize that the story told in these verses, it's true of so many people sitting around you, and it could be true of you too, from death to life by the grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to see what is true. Help us to perceive both the depth of our need and how much greater your grace is. For the person who does not see their need, I pray that today you will reveal it to them. The person who says, I'm okay. I just I need to get a few things straight, but, but I got it. I pray that today they will see they are dead. Dead in sin. And for the person who knows they're dead in sin but cannot see your grace, I pray that today you'd open their eyes to see your grace. That they'll marvel and wonder at the kindness you have displayed to us and how this is your goal forever. New experiences of your kindness. So Father, I pray, help us to see. Give us eyes to see what is true and what is real. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.